forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I believe in the ability to therapize yourself. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I love a good Instagram post about therapy. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. But for the month of May, in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we are doing a mini season called Mental Health 101, where we're tackling all of the big questions around mental health. And this week, we are talking about what do you do if you can't afford therapy? How do you still, you know, take care of your mental health? How do you still prioritize your mental health if therapy isn't an option for you? Yeah, we're going to be talking to Whitney Goodman of the Instagram account at Sit With Wit, which I, I'm sure a lot of you follow. It's a very popular account. Um, and she posts a lot of her tweets and also graphics about mental health with like amazing tips and tricks. It's been really cool to see the rise in mental health Instagrams. I know it's not a substitute for therapy, but the fact that it like it can provide so much insight for free is amazing. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that therapy just isn't an option for a ton of people, whether it be for financial reasons or because they don't have the time to get there. They don't have the access. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something that, you know, they're not comfortable with personally. Um, and so I'm excited to kind of get into some roundabout ways or so, you know, some, yeah. other, some other options for when you still want to prioritize your mental health. But, you know, therapy isn't in the cards for you, at least at this time. Yeah. And also, you know, there's a lot of access problems, even if you have the internet, which like during the pandemic, we've all like realized you can do therapy online or on the phone. But like some people don't have access to the internet like regularly, you know, at regularly scheduled times. So that's like a huge privilege that I think has come up a lot during the pandemic is when people are just like, oh, let's do things virtually. And then it's become clear that like, that's not an option for a large chunk of the population. Yeah, there's a a real issue with access um, in this country to all sorts of healthcare, including mental health care. But hopefully we can, we can't fill in all of the gaps, but hopefully we can we can help a little bit. <laughs> and if you're listening to this from another country and you're like, what's wrong with the U.S.? We know. <laughs> so stick around after the break. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It is Mental Health 101. And this episode, we are talking all about what to do if you can't afford therapy. Our guest this week is Whitney Goodman, a licensed marriage and family therapist in Florida. Her incredible Instagram is at sitwithwit, where she provides helpful tips and tricks for mental health. Hello, Whitney. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I know that you are a therapist. um, And so obviously, you're probably first line of defense when it comes to mental health stuff is, is to see a therapist. But I think the reality of the situation, especially in America, is that it's not a doable thing for people where either they don't have the finances, they don't have the time, they don't have the access. And so what do we what do we do to sort of fill that gap? Yeah, absolutely. I agree that it can be so difficult for people to access services. There are so many different ways to work on your mental health, though, outside of therapy. So I think just having people even prioritize those simple things like sleep, eating, drinking water, um, living in a safe home, in a safe community, sometimes those things can even go a lot further than therapy. And therapy can be an additional thing on top of all of that. And that's so interesting about being in a in a safe home or, or safe community, because I think for a lot of people, especially during quarantine, that was not the case. And they were kind of like stuck around people who who didn't feel safe to them for a variety of reasons. And so what what would you say if maybe for whatever reason, that's still their reality, but how do they best handle it? Yeah, that's really challenging. And that was something I was talking about with so many of my own clients. Um, That being able to set physical boundaries is, of course, the best thing. You know, if you're able to have a room that you can go to, space that's yours, maybe going in your car, um, Mm -hmm. going to a park, like a place where you can just get some distance. I think during quarantine, this was particularly difficult, especially for people who live in homes where 
there's a lot of shared space. And even going and staying with a friend, you know, whatever you have to do to prioritize that safety um, can be really helpful. And there's unfortunately not an easy answer to that one. What does it look like to set up a a boundary with somebody? And and why do we often view that word as negative when in reality, it it is a positive thing to do? Yeah, boundaries are the best. I think it's what keeps (laughs) us thriving um, and functioning. So if you're going to set a boundary with someone, you would first want to figure out like, what is the behavior that you want to target? Um, And I think it's important to think about that from your end. So not necessarily what do I want to control about this person, but what are they doing that's harmful to me or that's hurtful or that is destructive to my peace. And once you figure that out, um, try to think of a way that you can convey that to the other person. Now, of course, we just talked about homes where there might be um, abuse or it's unsafe. And so in these types of situations, you kind of have to tread carefully on how you're going to deliver this boundary because we, of course, don't want anybody to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, But I find that it's best to state a boundary in a very clear way. So it hurts me when you do X. I would appreciate if you did Y. And so trying to really give the person an example Mm -hmm. of what the behavior is, and then also what's going to be the replacement behavior um, or what's going to be the boundaries or the consequence that gets set up. I think there's this like misunderstanding when someone tries to set a boundary with you, that that means that they don't care about you. But in reality, when someone sets a boundary with you, it's because they care so much, they want to keep you in their life. Do you find that to be like a common misconception? Absolutely. Yeah. I I think people think boundaries are mean um, or like they're in some way like not thoughtful or whatever it is. But I personally set a boundary with someone or I work on this with a client. It's because we want to be able to continue having a relationship. And if I don't set this boundary, it's probably going to get to the point where either I start resenting you so much that this relationship isn't fulfilling to me anymore, or there's like full cutoff where you're just like, I can't do this anymore. And you kick the person out of your life. And that's way worse than setting a boundary. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to boundaries as being mean. I've seen a lot of stuff where people like cannot handle even minor confrontation or they the person setting the boundary can't handle minor confrontation and the person receiving the boundary feels that it's rude or mean or like some sort of indictment on them. So is there like a script that people can use or how do you, I've gotten very good at it, but in response, people in my family have been like, Gabby's a bitch now. Right. I think we have to remember that when you set a boundary with somebody and they get upset about it, it's usually because that boundary not being there was really nice for them Mm -hmm. or they had gotten used to it. It's not always malicious, but more just in the sense of like, it's the status quo. Like if you set a boundary with your mom, she might be like, what the heck is going on? We've always done things this way. And so we have to give people some space too to like get used to our boundaries. I find sometimes that people are like, well, I set the boundary once and they didn't respect it. So now they're gaslighting me. And it's not really that. It's sometimes it's just like you've been doing things for 35 years and you need some time to get used to it. But on the side of like feeling like I'm being mean if I set a boundary. I think that a lot of that comes down to like people pleasing and wanting people to like us and to be likable. And we can't be liked all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable. (laughs) and It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the reasons people go to therapy is to work on interpersonal skills and to work on how to have better relationships with people. So are there any any advice that you can give to people who are navigating this without the the help of a therapist? Yeah, I think what you're going to get a lot in therapy is practice with those boundaries, right? So I personally, as a therapist, set a lot of boundaries with my clients up front. And that can be like a trial run. And so if you don't have that relationship with a therapist, it's helpful to find somebody in your life that you're able to have that type of healthy relationship with maybe somebody who you notice has really good boundaries and does a great job at setting them and you want to practice with them or talk to them about it because a lot of boundary setting type or interpersonal healing, it has to happen in relationships. It's not something we can just read about in a book and then know how to do it. Finding a boundaries role model was really 
huge for me, like a friend of mine who just started saying no to things. And then I was like, teach me everything. (laughs) And so if you have someone in your life, if you're listening to this, you have someone that is really good with boundaries, you can just go to them and be like, how do you do this? For sure. I think that's so good. And I think like modeling in general is like a really helpful thing, right? Of like uh, maybe identifying people in your life who move through the world in a way that you admire and sort of like picking up on what they're doing or conversely, people who move through the world in a way you don't admire and and, <laughs> and avoiding that behavior. Is, is it, Can that be helpful as well? Absolutely. And I think you can even see that like following therapists on Instagram or interacting with friends, like you said, of like watching how people communicate boundaries, how they handle themselves in these dynamics and kind of seeing like, wow, nothing really bad is happening to them. They're okay. (laughs) But not everybody hates them. You know, some of these fears that come up when we're setting boundaries can be reassuring. And I think, you know, sometimes people are like, I look at all of my relationships in my life and, and none of them are healthy. What advice do you give then? Is it like going out and find and just like trying to make new friends? So if you look at your life and you say, I I don't really see any healthy relationships, I think sometimes we have to look at like, I'm the common denominator in all of these relationships. And what might I be getting from them? What did I learn growing up that is making me pursue dynamics like this? And trying to kind of figure that out and heal that within ourselves so that we're able to pursue relationships that are in line with what we actually want. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like a lot of environmental factors can like, you know, really affect mental health. I've been seeing a lot of stuff on Instagram about, you know, it's mental health month and suicide prevention. Universal health care is suicide prevention. Fair housing is suicide prevention. And, you know, we spoke about this with our sleep doctor about how even just having the comfort of a place to sleep is like huge for mental health. So, you know, I, I think people like go to therapy and then they don't, change anything about what's going on in their actual life. When someone comes to you, how much do you tell them to do in their own personal life outside of therapy, like in terms of environmental changes? So that environmental stuff, I think can be so much more impactful. A lot of people do think like, I'm going to go to therapy once a week and everything's going to get better. And somehow the, the onus of like responsibility about mental health has been put totally on mental health providers instead of looking at these other systems, right? So what you're saying about sleep, eating, all that, that stuff I discuss from the second somebody walks into my office. And I kind of come from the philosophy that if those basic needs are not met, anything that we do in the session is like any exploration of meaning and all this other stuff isn't really going to help because if you're not sleeping, eating, drinking water, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to go deep into all those other things. And for some people, it's not safe. They don't have the tools to handle it. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is like the ultimate question is, if you can't afford therapy, is it safe for you to like go out and research things and look up things and follow these accounts on Instagram and social and sort of like, you know, I talk about therapizing yourself, but I've also had years and years with working with a therapist in conjunction with that. So how does someone go and find resources on their own and make sure that they're implementing them in a, in a safe way? I think so much of this stuff is so new that we don't really know the impact that it's having on people, you know, to be consuming so much mental health content possibly in isolation, therapizing themselves, like you said, that it's hard for me to say, is it safe? Is it not? I think for some people it's enough and it might be even more helpful than therapy. But I think for others, there is a risk of maybe moving too quickly, consuming content that isn't right for them. Um, And those are the people that are really vulnerable to mental health content being like so popular now and, and kind of shared so widely. Do you see a lot of that on Instagram uh, stuff where you're like, oh, no, all the time. (laughs) It's really unfortunate. Or people, you know, maybe speaking from a really well intentioned place, but that don't have the training, I think, to know how it's going to impact certain populations. And so that can be scary. I think everything we write, you have to imagine, like, what if the most vulnerable person was sitting alone reading this? What might happen? you know, and we can't be responsible for how everybody takes in information, but there is that duty to not do further harm. What is some 
signals that the content could be harmful? I think anything that speaks in absolutes um, is a red flag to me. So anything that uses words like always, never, all people, things that are really grounded in personal experience, but the person is applying them to a wide audience. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're speaking about your own mental health, that should be really clearly explained, right? Versus speaking from like a research perspective. Um, And also just making claims that are maybe not validated. So we see that a lot with like supplements or certain types of wellness practices that maybe have not been tested in certain populations, but someone's trying to apply them to everyone. Yeah, that's that's the next thing to get to is like wellness culture. And so when is that helpful? When is that harmful? You know, what should you as a consumer be wary of? Yeah, I feel like with wellness culture, you can apply the same set of standards, like looking at who am I listening to? Who is this voice? Where are they getting their information? Are they like me? You know, if if you're listening to a white woman who has endless resources and is sort of speaking about all these things she's trying and they're great, and you're somebody that is living in poverty and doesn't have access to medical care, you're probably not going to have the same overlap of what you need. And I think some of these things in wellness culture can be kind of predatory on certain people. And also just looking at like, where did this person get their credentials? You know, what are they speaking about? I find that it's like a when someone tells you to supplement for like if someone's like, if you just take this pill or this mixture or this tincture or whatever, um, you won't need these other things. Or we talked about a little bit uh, on another show, like doctors won't tell you. You know what I mean? Like, this is the thing that doctors won't tell you. Right, right. Like, wait, where is this conspiracy that people are hiding all these things from you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That always blows my mind. Well, I need to join an MLM. So, (laughs) (laughs) so like, what are the credentials that you should look for when you're taking in advice from somebody? Sure. So I think it depends on like what, what's the lane, right? So if you're looking at mental health content, like, are they a licensed provider? Do they have a minimum of a master's degree? Are they practicing? They should have some type of license, which varies state by state. We also are following people in other countries. So kind of figuring out what that is. And that's really just because those people are held to an ethical and legal standard that if they were to harm somebody, there's somebody to go after, right? There's board holding them accountable and rules. I think with with medical stuff, are they an MD? Are they a nurse? Do they have expertise in this particular area? That to me is very different than somebody who's like, you know, I had this illness and I cured it with these supplements. And here's how I'm going to tell all of you to cure it too. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a full history, medical, biopsychosocial history of somebody on Instagram. Like you can't make that call. How do you see people's relationships with social media in in general impacting their mental health? You know, if, if someone is feeling like they're doing poorly, would you recommend like taking a break from social media? I've realized that social media can be very good and very bad depending on how you're using it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is about like, how can I tailor my feed, you know, to fit what I need. And for me like that a while ago, that meant like following every influencer that was posting like bikini pictures, making me feel awful. Once I got rid of that, I was like, Oh, I love Instagram. (laughs) So (laughs) trying to tailor your experience, I think can be huge. And then if you find yourself like on there all the time or it's draining, yeah, taking a break. But I think that's so individualized for the person. So like checking in with yourself, like when do I feel bad when I'm using social media? What posts are actually helpful to me? And, you know, feeling like if I need to unfollow this friend, because for whatever reason, their posts have a negative effect on me, that that's okay. And that's part of prioritizing your mental health. Mute them. Absolutely. Yeah. Mute them, unfollow them, (laughs) whatever you have to do. But like noticing when you're scrolling, if there's a post that comes up and it makes you feel anxious, bad about yourself, that's not what, why are you on there doing that? You know, we don't need any more reasons to beat ourselves up. It's been delightful to not have Facebook and to not have Twitter. I got rid of Twitter in the fall and like, I thought you need it. In my head, I was like, I need it for work. Everybody's on there. Like you need it. They're not in the room with you. Once they're gone off Mm -hmm. Twitter, 
And also it, it helped me learn that I don't need to have an opinion on everything. Like it's just this normalized thing that I think maybe if you're listening to this and you're like, no, I have to be on Twitter. You don't. And I think like, you know, you can read the news on a website at a slower pace. Like everything is happening so fast. And I just saw a thing that like young people, it was like, they measured like levels of depression for if they just looked at TikTok versus if they didn't just look at TikTok. You know, TikTok's fun, but it was like, it made it worse or made it you compare mm-hmm. yourself for all these things. And like, I think that kind of dovetails into mindfulness, which like, do you recommend like meditation or like, you know, something to ground, what can ground you in reality? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that social media can take you out of reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so any of those grounding exercises can be helpful, whether it's meditation, mindfulness, being around real people, getting off your phone, going outside, like engaging with what is actually around you in your community instead of this stuff that's like in this faraway phone land. And can we talk a little bit more about those those different practices? And if you're not familiar with them, like how to kind of start to incorporate them into your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I think some of these um, practices like mindfulness, meditation, they've been sort of like blown up so much that they seem scary or overwhelming to take on. And it's, again, something that you can do in a way that fits you. So with mindfulness, that's really just being present in the moment and focusing on what you're doing. So you can do mindful eating where you just eat instead of scrolling on your phone and doing emails and all these other things. You can meditate where you're going on a walk um, and doing a walking meditation and just looking at what's around you. There's a lot of different ways to engage with these tools. Movement can be really helpful. Um, Getting outside, we mentioned. There's so many options, but I would try to do them in a way that works for you, not just like this prescriptive way that you're being told to do it. And and what role does like noticing play in sort of improving your, your mental health? Like how often should you be checking in with yourself? So there can be um, too much checking in with yourself, particularly if you have anxiety. And that's some of the concerns I have about a lot of the Instagram content, even some that I create for people with anxiety is that there's this constant like self-rumination and exploration that can be detrimental. So checking in with yourself, I think can be as simple as like, where am I at right now? What's going on for me? And that's it. And just kind of taking inventory of that. If you're somebody that's very disconnected or numb, you might need to do more. For people with a lot of anxiety, a lot of like introspection, you might need to cut back on the checking (laughs) in. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even just noticing if you're cold, noticing if you're thirsty, noticing if Mm -hmm. you're hungry. You know, my my partner is trans and their therapist was talking about how there's a real disconnect or it's alluring to disconnect from your body. But their therapist was saying, no, not just like noticing what's around, but be like, are you wearing a sweater that's itchy? Are you doing like just kind of the amount of times where it's like I'm in a bad mood, but you just needed to drink water is like exponential. (laughs) A thousand percent. So how do we like connect with our bodies if, if we are someone who tends to disconnect? I think the noticing, like you just mentioned, is the first place to start, right? So for people who, especially who have been through any type of trauma, especially developmental trauma, it's very normal to disconnect from the body because that can be more comfortable. So just trying to check in exactly like you just mentioned. Do I need water? Do I need food? How is my body feeling? Do I have tension anywhere? You may not even notice that you're feeling tension, you know, in your shoulders, your legs. There are a lot of great um, like body scan exercises that you can find online, even guided ones on YouTube that will help you just learn how to move like from head to toe through your body. And check in with what's going on. And when it comes to like, okay, I'm I'm going to, you know, my mental health isn't doing well, I can recognize that, you know, I'm not able to to see a therapist, but I, I like want to address this. What are like reasonable goals to have? You know, like I think you've been talking on your account a bit about like not necessarily striving for happiness, mm-hmm. but, but like what what is a goal someone should be working towards? I think it depends on your starting point. So for some people that might be like, I'm going to start showering, you know, Mm -hmm. every day or brushing my teeth. A lot of those like self-care things that can be 
challenging for people with depression. For others, it might involve like really getting in touch with your values. And that's another great thing I like to do with people is like there's lists of values online. And you can look at them and be like, all right, what's most important to me in my life? And based on those values, you can choose how am I going to get there? Like how am I going to strive? towards these things. And that can help set goals. And that's a lot more reasonable or achievable than let's say like happiness, or I'm going to love myself or some of these like amorphous goals. So you think it's better to have more like grounded, tangible things that you're working towards? I do, especially at first. And I think they should be really small, um, particularly if you're doing it on your own. And again, depending on your starting place, but it's kind of like, when people set like New Year's resolutions and like, I'm going to go to the gym seven days a week for two hours. Like, no, you're not. You're going to do it maybe for a couple of days, if that, and you're going to stop. And that type of goal setting, it only makes us quit and we get resentful, etc. So saying like, I'm going to work out for 15 minutes once a week for somebody who does none of that right now is much more achievable and you can continue to ramp up from there. And I apply that philosophy to anything. And I think it's really interesting what you mentioned about values. Could you like give some examples of those and and how to work towards them? Yeah, totally. So a value could be honesty. Um, It could be family time. So a lot of us are, we say we have certain values, but we're not living in accordance with them. And that's what can make life feel kind of bad sometimes. Mm -hmm. So if I say a value that I hold is closeness in my marriage, I want to be close with my spouse. How am I going to operationalize that? So I might say I want to spend a certain amount of time with them each week. I want to have checking conversations at the end of each day. And then what are the different roads that are going to get me there? Yeah. And And I think a lot of times when we're like, okay, I need to work on my mental health, it it feels very internal. But like, how important is it to then part of that potentially being like, learning how to rely on your support system, enriching your support system, being a bigger part of your community? For sure. We cannot do all of this ourselves. And the number one predictor of someone's uh, mental health life satisfaction is typically the quality of their relationships. Mm. So people that have close fulfilling relationships often have better mental health. I think that whenever you've been hurt within relationships, it is best to heal within relationships and the safety of those. So trying to add that to your mental health care plan is huge. What would that look like? Yeah. So even just spending time with people that make you feel good, that are respectful, that you can set boundaries with. Um, I know you mentioned like reaching out to people, relying on them, asking for help, particularly for people who are very much like, I can't rely on anybody. That's one of their core beliefs. Asking for help and trying to do that more can really help transform that belief and improve how that person feels. Even if that person says no, the practice of asking and the practice of like normalizing saying I need help can just be for you. Doesn't have to, it doesn't matter if they say yes or not. Although largely they probably will. I think there's a lot of people that feel super lonely. Like Alice and I have talked a lot about loneliness as an epidemic um, and how that like really affects mental health. And I like, how do you combat loneliness if you have a hard time making friends? The fact that we all feel lonely, I think is something that we have to like really remember because it's easy to get into this space of like, I'm the only one that feels lonely. Everybody's hanging out without me. They're all connected and close. But I think we all know, I mean, I know when I sit with 20 people in a week, they're all experiencing loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so remembering that sometimes can be the spark of like, I know when I'm lonely, I just want somebody to reach out to me. So I'm going to be that person for this person. And we're going to both be able to combat that loneliness together can make it less scary. And also knowing that we have to like get out of our comfort zones to combat loneliness. If you're in your house on your phone, it's probably just going to continue to intensify those feelings. And the pandemic has done that for all of us. What role do you think volunteering has in in helping people's mental health? I think it can be very helpful. There, A lot of research has shown that 
helping other people and being able to form that connection is really good for mental health. It can improve social bonds. Uh, It helps you feel more connected to your community or to a cause. I think it depends on the root behind it. Some people like will only volunteer and they become such habitual givers and fixers that it becomes draining. But when it's coming from a good like rooted place, an excellent thing to do. I think a lot of times what can lead to these feelings of of helplessness and hopelessness is is feeling like you don't have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Maybe even like checking in with yourself and being like, is is that what is happening here? And then would you recommend that like a way to, to sort of find your purpose is sort of through identifying those values that are important to you? Totally. That's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying that is like, if we know what our values are and what's important to us, and that's not fixed throughout the lifetime, what I value at 18 is going to be different than at 50. So you need to consistently check in with those, but those values will guide you to be able to find what is my path going to be right now in life? What's my purpose or my goal going to be? Do you recommend journaling? Sure. Journaling has been shown to be very effective. There's so many different ways you can journal, whether it's like lists or long entries or voice notes. The preventative or the helpful part about journaling is being able to kind of give a name to feelings and to chronicle what you're going through and make it so it like has validity and and that it's understandable. You can also do art, drawing, music. Those are all kind of ways of journaling in a sense. And we talk a lot about reframing, right? Like how you can have these beliefs that are actually not based on evidence and are kind of harmful to how you interact in the world. Is that something that you think is safe for someone to sort of start to examine on their own? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, there are extreme cases, like if somebody has maybe schizophrenia or delusional type thoughts, that that might be very challenging for them. But for majority of the general population, I think reframing is not only helpful, but essential. So being able to validate that I'm having this thought and everybody has weird thoughts and then trying to say, okay, do I just want to let that thought go? Do I need to reframe it into something else? Um, And why might I be having a thought like this? What are like some signals that you maybe need to reframe your thoughts? Any thought that makes you feel very stuck, overwhelmed, increases your anxiety. Uh, Also, again, those absolutes. Like if I have any thought that's like always, never, um, it's, it's like very much there is no gray. Mm -hmm. It's probably a thought that needs to be reframed because there's nothing that's that certain often in this life, especially our thoughts. Yeah. And that sort of plays into this idea of like, there are no shoulds, right? So I think a lot of times people can feel like they're falling behind others or their life isn't the quality that it should be because they have all this should beliefs of what life should look like and rules that they should follow. And so how would you sort of suggest someone kind of tackle that. Yeah, as a as a family therapist, I think very systemically in the sense that like a lot of those shoulds are tied back to how we were raised, our culture, our parents. And so thinking about like where did this should come from? Because it probably doesn't exist outside of that bubble or we would all have the same shoulds. <laughs> and we don't. So trying to question, you know, who made this up and who's benefiting from it? Mm-hmm. Certainly not me. And for me, I I think, you know, a big shift happened when I just started to talk to myself in a different way. And when I like treating myself more positively and treating myself more like a friend in my own brain, how would someone start that process? Yeah. So I think even just what you just said of thinking like, okay, what would I say to a friend if they said this to me is a great way to start reframing it. I like to always ask like, do I need a lot of compassion right now? Or do I kind of need like a kick in the butt to do something? Because sometimes we can say to ourselves like, Oh, it's fine. It's fine. But like, I do need to get out of bed in the morning. So I can validate how I'm feeling and also say like, all right, now I need to get this done. Um, and trying to be both like a coach and a compassionate, gentle friend to yourself, I think is a great balance. Yeah. How would you define self-compassion? To me, it's really just like, regarding yourself as somebody that's worthy of compassion, love, appreciation, like just recognizing that you're a human being um, and trying to make that part of your daily conversations with yourself. Pet talks. 
Look yourself in the yeah. mirror. Say, <laughs> you got this. You can do it. Put little, um, I had a roommate who put little things on the mirror mm. that were like, hey, good job, like Sarah, <laughs> you did it, you know? <laughs> Exactly. And you are the person that knows what you need to hear the Mm. most. So like you mentioned toxic positivity, I think that's so much up to like the eye of the beholder, right? Mm. And what feels good to us is what feels good to us. And so I tell people like, just use what works when you're trying to motivate. I think toxic positivity is this is kind of confusing. But but to me, what makes it toxic is like this idea that like, you should be happy all the time. That you mm-hmm. should just like always be grateful and and there's no reason to ever be sad. And like, it's so wonderful that you're alive. And so therefore you should just be excelling in all areas of your life always. <laughs> and like, how, exactly. how is that messaging harmful? Right. So that messaging is very, very dismissive in my opinion. And it, it often tells people like, I know you're feeling this thing but you shouldn't be feeling it. And here's Mm -hmm. all the reasons why you shouldn't (laughs) be feeling it. You know, I've I've seen that a lot as I've been pregnant. Like if I complain about anything, oh, but it's such a miracle. There's so many women that would love to be in your position. Things like that, that you're just like, no, but I just, I'm uncomfortable. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know those other women. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel for them, but I'm not thinking about them right now. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to have your own experiences. You're allowed to have your own thoughts. It's just, for me, it's like, don't ruminate in them. Also, probably if anyone who's trying to sell you toxic positivity is at the end of it going to try to sell you leggings. Like this is like, <laughs> it seems like to be really rooted in capitalism because it has to do with like productivity culture. Always be happy. Always be making yep. stuff. Always be the perfect mom. Like these, even like these moms on Instagram who post like their perfect family and they're all wearing the same outfits and everybody's like, I'm sure it makes people like other moms feel like shit. It's a big order like to live up to. And Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing when we see these photos and things like that, or these like sales pitches is really like 5% of the picture. Mm -hmm. And I feel for a lot of these people because I think there's a lot of misery behind that outward projection of happiness. And I I see it all the time behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. You can be grateful without being without ignoring your humanity. (laughs) Right. Or the humanity of others, you know, Mm -hmm. pushing people into gratitude because other people have it worse or it could be worse. It could always be worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find that to be such a harmful thing to, to tell yourself. Yeah, it could be worse, but that's not the reality you're living in. You're living in this reality. And mm-hmm. sometimes this reality sucks and sometimes it hurts. And it's and you you have to like let yourself process that mm-hmm. or else it's just gonna catch up with you later. Absolutely. Yeah. Perspective is really important and it can be helpful to like be like, okay, you know, I have a roof over my head and all these things, but it's about the timing mm-hmm. to me that you implement that. So if you do it right away in the midst of struggle, it's probably just going to make you feel awful. How do you find that balance between it's okay to not be okay and I I do want to get better? It's a really tough balance, I think, depending on on what you're dealing with. And it ultimately comes down to the individual. You know, we can't make anybody want to be better or to get better. They have to find their own like inner locus of control and motivation. To me, it comes down to people knowing that things can be better and believing that they're worthy of a life that is meaningful and is more than what they're experiencing right now. Yeah, I'm I'm in a family therapy class right now and just learning so much about systems and how we all influence each other. And so kind of getting back to what we talked to at the beginning, like if you're like, everything would be okay if the people in my life acted differently, but you don't have the power to make them act differently. What do you do? This is where boundaries can come in. Also a heavy dose of acceptance of like, these are the people that I have and deciding like, can I have them in my life or not? That belief also often that like, if everybody just changed, everything would be good. It's often not rooted in reality. Sometimes it's like, I don't want to look at my stuff. So I'd Mm -hmm. rather you guys just all change for me (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then everything will be good. And that maybe if you start to recognizing that if you start to change, then maybe the way they interact with you will start to change. And and sort of like while acknowledging that you're part of this bigger system, accepting that all that you can control is yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And that doesn't mean you have to tolerate 
mm-hmm. abuse or bad things, but there is a certain level of acceptance of like, this is who I've got and I can decide what I want to do with that. Yeah. Not trying to fix, letting things just sort of go, not going overboard to like feed into, uh, you know, what you've always done, which is like people please these people or not stand up for what you, you know, what you, what would make your life better. I have a question about books. So like if you go to the library, let's say, and you get like some self-help stuff or you're just perusing, what like what books would be helpful to people? How do they know that the book isn't like written by a cult leader or something? (laughs) It's actually a huge problem now. I feel like I'm seeing all these books come out that I'm like, oh, I didn't read that, but that's awful. Mm. Um, I think the same thing goes back to like Instagram screening of looking like who wrote this book? What's their background? are they talking to people like me or are they Mm. only speaking to a certain population? Do they have the credentials or experience to speak on what it is I'm going through? I think a book that is trying to like sell you something like you've mentioned a few times can be kind of problematic or that tells you that you're incomplete. Mm -hmm. I, I also like to look out for a lot of like diet culture type stuff, people that really engage in shame or telling you you need to change something about yourself. Um, those can be red flags. And what about workbooks? Are those something that are safe to do without the supervision of a therapist? Yeah. So again, I think for people with a lot of anxiety or who are maybe like a little bit, become a little bit obsessive with like healing themselves, workbooks can become a distraction. So just continuing to check in with yourself on like, am I feeling like I just need to continue working on myself constantly? Or is this really helping me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not living life because you're constantly trying to better, better, better yourself. Exactly. exactly. And that's something I see a lot that it's like, you're allowed to take breaks. You don't have to <laughs> constantly be this self-improvement project. Like there's no award at the end. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, I got to really sit with that. Um. Yeah, there's no award at the end. (laughs) Unless it's Scientology and Xenu will take you up. I think we're really ignoring Scientology here, you guys. This is true. I am actually from the the, uh, headquarters. You're from Clearwater? (laughs) I'm from Clearwater. Born and raised. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So I'm very familiar. And I, you know, I think that what you're saying is right, that sometimes it's like, well, if I just, if I got a better sense of my mental health, then I would get a better job, then I would get a better partner, then I would make more money then I would, you know, but maybe instead, like thinking my only, what I'm striving for is a better internal life. That like, mm, when yeah. I'm sitting alone, that I'm not miserable. <laughs> Mm -hmm. right and like accepting yourself for Mm -hmm. who you are and what you are instead of always thinking like I just got to fix this one last thing yeah or finding a distraction I feel like we're joking about Scientology but I feel like a lot of stuff is like I just want a community I want to believe that my life has purpose I want you know like it's so easy to fall into these things because you just want a quick fix provide all of that for me now And like, that's going to lead to terrible consequences. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a big red flag to look out for in groups, books, communities. Anybody that says like, if you just do this, your life will be better is probably selling you a lie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before we move on, I guess my final question is, you know, what are the signs that I have to, I need therapy that like, this is not working on my own. I have, I have to somehow make this work either through community resources or, you know, like, when is it like, okay, in the same way you need to go get your appendix out, when do you really need that intervention of a, a mental health professional? Sure. So I think this occurs on a, across the spectrum. Um, there's a lot of people that come to therapy just because they want to uncover things. They want to talk. They want to be introspective. Maybe their life is not being disrupted by any symptoms particularly. And that's a fine place to start. When it gets to the point where your sleep is being impacted, your eating, your relationships, you find that you're struggling at work, what we call like activities of daily living are being disrupted by your mental health. That to me is like a red flag. And that's a sign of like, I really need to start prioritizing this and I've got to make it work somehow. And there's a lot of therapists that do sliding scale 
that offer different price points. Um, there are a lot of websites for different minority or marginalized communities that might be able to help as well. Yeah. And and so recognizing that like right now, I don't need the therapy, but at some point I might need to prioritize, you know, I might need to be a priority for me or that like mm-hmm. right now it's going to be a priority for me, but it, it can be potentially only for a few months and and how do I save money for those few months and not take on this like extra financial burden for a lifetime? Mm-hmm. Right, right. There are a lot of affordable therapy resources. We've talked about like seeing students or, you know, doing sliding scale or um, looking up group therapy, group therapy, right. Mm-hmm. So you're not shit out of luck, basically. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to find these things, but they are out there. Thank you so much. Um, This was so helpful. And and we are not letting you go just yet. So (laughs) stick around after the break. We'll be answering three questions. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It is time for three questions. We love to sort of get into the mind of mental health professionals own relationship with their mental health. So One of the things I'm always curious about is like, what is something that you wish you had known about managing your own mental health when you were younger? I think that it happens um, in the small, like daily actions. I thought it had to be this big thing of like going to therapy all the time or overhauling my mental health. And really, it's just like the choices that I make each morning. Like what? Like just deciding to follow a routine in the morning is helpful to me. Getting up exercising, things like that, that that consistency is super helpful for my mental health. Um, And before I didn't really understand the value of that for sure. That it's you're forever in relationship with your mental health, not just Mm -hmm. like for that hour a week when you're in therapy. Mm -hmm. And routine. Oh, bless you, routine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Gotta love it. And then what is something you're glad that you now know about mental health that you implement into your daily life? So I'm not glad that everybody struggles, but learning that everybody does has been so helpful to me and validating. I I always felt really isolated in like my anxiety or that everybody else was functioning better than I was. Mm. And knowing that they're not is, is helpful. Even just like what we talked about with loneliness, that knowing that everybody experiences loneliness, even if they're posting photos with their friends twice a week. Uh And then I guess the final question is, what is something that you're still trying to learn and implement into your mental health care? My hardest battle is not uh, overextending myself to help other people. And also like saying sorry too much. I'm a chronic apologizer and it, it doesn't help me. So you feel like you it's like finding that balance of like you're giving too much of yourself and not taking care of yourself? For sure. Or just not even giving, but like the mental tape in your head of thinking about other people all the time and worrying about them and sort of mm. that being a way to show that you're caring, but really nobody knows I'm doing it. It's just hurting me. <laughs> so. How do you stop apologizing so much? Tell us. Oh, I, I'm trying to figure it out. I apologize for the dumbest stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it comes out of my mouth. I'm like, why is he sorry for that? Mm-hmm. So working on my inner, inner people pleaser that always feels like I need to say sorry. I have this weird relationship with it where I'm like, I like apologizing. <laughs> like, cause it doesn't, it doesn't like make me feel like a bad person or that. Like I did like this huge thing, but like, you know, I in the past have felt like when someone will be like, stop apologizing, I'll be like, but that's what I want to do. Like if I'm playing tennis with somebody and I hit the ball really far away, you know, some and I say sorry. So people might be like, you don't need to say sorry for that. And it's like, but I want to. I'm sorry. You have to go get the ball. Like I know right. I'm not a bad person because I hit the ball in the far <laughs> away. But like, I don't know. I think sometimes it's like also what we think a sorry means, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've watered down the meaning excessively in my life. <laughs> it's time to reel it back in. So. I have to force myself to do it and it's physically painful sometimes. So what's that about? I, I know. hate it. I have to drag myself to my partner. I have to force myself to... It's like, ugh. Oh my gosh. I'm the opposite. If I ask my husband for anything, I'm like, I'm so sorry for asking this, but... <laughs> so. 
I don't know. I got to think about your end of the spectrum. So. No, it depends. People often are, I unintentionally are like, Gabby's aggressive or rude, but it's just because I'm not, I'm not applying, like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say what they think female AFAB people are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I just like forget it sometimes. And then I think, I think it then people label you aggressive, but you know what? Whatever. See, I think the issue is labeling politeness as a feminine quality and then saying that's a bad thing. Whoa. Whereas Mm. to me, I think politeness is wonderful. And why not strive for people of all genders to be more polite instead of like identifying it as feminine and therefore bad? Right. And wanting women to be more like men. Yeah. It's hard. It's It's another angle. I know. Nobody say I'm sorry. (laughs) Instead of apologizing less to fit what we think of as as a male, you know, culture, (laughs) like why not just I don't know. I I also think we're missing a word in society. Like, I think we're missing a word that's like, excuse me for non-physical things like, you know, like (laughs) being like I not like because it's not like I'm sorry I'm asking of this of you, but I acknowledge that it is probably an inconvenience or I not like like a word for like acknowledgement, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But that's a discussion for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Do a whole episode on sorry. I'm going to text a linguist right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Before we let our guests go, we like to put them in the hot seat and ask them what their experience was like being a guest on the podcast. (laughs) If they have any feedback, if you want to rate your your time here, we welcome it. Yeah, I loved it. It was great. You had wonderful questions. Flow was good. No complaints. We love it. We love to hear no complaints. <laughs> Do you have like a like a out of 10? I feel like I'd give it a 9 or a 10 out of 10. I felt good. Wow. And considering yeah. that you're nine months pregnant and probably just want to be lying down all day, that really means something. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Giving you guys all my energy. <laughs> thank you so much. And where can people find you and follow everything you're doing? Yeah, Instagram's the best place. Everything's linked through there um, at sitwithwit on Instagram. And as somebody who follows a lot of mental health Instagrams, it is one of my absolute favorites. So definitely check it out. Thank you. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by Allison Raskin and me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Emotional Sport Lady for Allison and at Gabby Road for me, Gabby, and also at Allison Raskin for Allison. But honestly, you're going to want to see the cartoons on Emotional Sport Lady. So please follow that. And me at Gabby Road. But I don't have any cartoons.